Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We are working our way through the book of John. We're preaching through John, and this is the first time we've started not in John. So you'll wonder why I'm reading a story about a snake, but it'll all make sense here in just a minute. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Now this is jumping in the middle of the story of Moses leading the children of Israel out of the promised land, out of Egypt and into the promised land. And they're wandering in the desert. They end up wandering for 40 years, what it should have been about a two-week journey. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathed this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents. This is poisonous snakes. It's probably uh, the Egyptian cobra. Uh, That was the snake that was prominent around there. And if you look them up, they they are scary snakes. And this is probably what came into the camp. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for you have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And then reading John chapter 3, we've spent two weeks, two sermons on the first part of John 3, the new birth. So we're reading now John chapter 3, the second part of this, 14 through 22. And this is why we read this passage from Numbers. And as Moses, this is Jesus speaking, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in Him may have eternal life, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Father, thank you for your word. It is forever settled in heaven. It is your divine breath among us. 
that your word is in this book, but that your word is also incarnate in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ who now dwells inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that this morning. Lord, we honor you for that. Lord, I ask you in these next few moments of time as your word goes forth, not my words, but your word, that you would anoint it, Lord, with your presence, that you would touch our hearts and our minds to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Most of the time when people are compared to a snake, it is not a compliment to that person. If I say that he is like a snake in the grass, it means that that person is treacherous, they're sneaky, they're lying in await to attack. That person cannot be trusted. There are some cultures that have revered snakes. They have been symbols of healing and health and even fertility. Uh, you think about the snake on the staff that it's often used as a symbol in the medical community. Um, that may come from the scripture we read in Numbers. It probably comes from Greek mythology, but regardless, throughout history, the snake on the staff has been viewed as a sign of healing. Although in our culture, we don't look at snakes that way. Uh, they're not highly esteemed in Western culture. The snake is the animal that was used to deceive Eve in the Garden of Eden that was presumably inhabited by Satan himself, uh, and that was a snake. And that snake, and this is important to remember as we go on in this story, that that snake was cursed. God cursed that snake because of what he did. So it is shocking that Jesus would compare himself to a snake in verse 14. Now, Jesus did point the Old Testament towards him. Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you have life, and they are they which testify of me, which was an outrageous claim. It's why he was crucified. He claimed to be the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament spoke about. He said from Genesis to Malachi, or in their arrangement of the Bible, from Genesis to the last book of their Old Testament, which was 2 Chronicles, he said, this is all talking about me. All the, all the scripture you have, I'm the one it's pointing to. And that's an outrageous thing to say unless it's true. So we expect Jesus to draw allusions from the Old Testament and point to himself, but not like this. We don't expect him to pull a story about a snake and say, you've got to do like Moses did with that snake on a staff. But that's exactly what he did. It makes sense if we understand what Paul says Paul says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus was the curse that saved us from our sins, like the snake that was cursed in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus said that just as Moses lifted up a bronze serpent on a pole so that those who were bitten by a poisonous snake could look at it and be healed, so must God's Son be lifted up so that people could believe on Him and have eternal life. Now we often <clears throat> talk about Jesus, we're going to lift Jesus up this morning and that means we're going to worship Him. This is not what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about Him being worshipped. Lifted up, it was a veiled reference, an allusion to His crucifixion, that Christ being lifted up on a cross, on a wooden beam, was like the serpent being raised up on the pole. And if you look to the crucified Christ, as the people looked who were cursed by their situation, a poisonous snake bite, me who is cursed by sin, I can look unto Jesus and be saved. 
We know this is what he's referring to because in John 12, Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And John doesn't leave it to our imaginations what he's talking about. John says that he said this to signify what kind of death he would experience. Jesus knew he was going to be crucified. He knew throughout his life, that is the end result of, of what I came to do. If I be lifted up, that tells us he knew I'm going to die this way. And So what kind of weight must have been carried around every day by our Lord and Savior when he would walk through and see other people crucified? It was not an uncommon thing. It's how common criminals, just the ordinary criminal, was put to death. It was an example. You read Josephus, who is our most reliable first century historian, and Josephus says, when you went into Rome, all the roads that led into Rome were lined with people dying on crosses. It was a very clear reminder for the people coming to visit the city that this is your fate if you break the law. Everybody had seen a crucifixion. And what kind of weight must Jesus have carried around every day knowing that was going to be Him? But yet also knowing that through His death and resurrection, people would experience eternal life. They would escape the damnation of hellfire because of what was going to happen to Him. And as the children of Israel, suffering from the painful sting of a venomous snake, dying in their condition, so must every man and woman suffering under the curse of sin must look to Jesus and be saved. They must look toward Him. They must see Him. Charles Spurgeon, who was probably the most famous 19th century preacher, lived in London, England. He told the story of his conversion when he was 15 years old. There was a snowstorm that night and he found himself in a church in the middle of this blizzard and the pastor was snowed in. He couldn't make it. Now think this is the 1800s. And finally, everybody kind of sitting around is the impression that he gives, and finally a man who, I don't know how much of a preacher he was, but he got up and he stepped into the pulpit and he read a text from Isaiah, uh, or quoted a text. Spurgeon says he completely misquoted the text, didn't actually say what it said, and then he began to preach. And Spurgeon says, Then the good man followed up his text in this way, Look unto me, I am sweating. And he's talking about this man being very uneducated, so he's dropping the G's in his in his auto, if you read Spurgeon's autobiography, you get that impression of this guy that Spurgeon doesn't think too highly of him. And so he's, you know, he doesn't talk real well. And so this man gets up and says, Look unto me, I am sweating and great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And then lifting up his hands, the preacher shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, as he looked at Spurgeon, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Spurgeon said, I saw at once the salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I almost had to look my eyes away. 
and there and then the cloud was gone and the darkness had rolled away in that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them. This is coming from a 15 year old teenager. Of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. And now I can say, and then he quotes the words of a song, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be until I die. And that's what I would plead with all of us this morning is look unto Jesus Christ. Ask God for spiritual eyes that will allow you to see Christ as He really is. Not the Christ that's portrayed in, in movies, not the Christ that's portrayed in culture, but the Christ Messiah as He really is. Look unto Him. And then we come to probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. I'm reading this morning from ESV. If you're familiar with it in the King James, His only begotten Son. I am glad to have the conversation of why in the ESV the word begotten is removed. Uh, I'm not going to do that here, but I'll be glad to talk about why that is. I think there's some really good reasons uh, that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It is a summation of the Christian faith. Now, a friend of mine, I've heard him say many times, anytime you see the word <clears throat> therefore in the Bible, you should ask what it is therefore. And the word for is like the word therefore. There are no accidental words in scriptures. For God so loved the world. Now, if it were just one verse, and a lot of people seem to think that, they don't understand that this verse is sitting in the middle of the context of a much broader story. It's the same conversation where Nicodemus hears Jesus say, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's just a few words later that Jesus says, for God so loved the world. It's all the same conversation. If it were just one verse, if it were a bumper sticker, you wouldn't see a bumper sticker that would say, for God so loved the world. It would say, so God, it would say, so God loved, so loved the world. You wouldn't need that word there. But it doesn't because you can't just pull a verse out like that without reading in its, its context. There are a lot of things that are misunderstood in Christianity because of this bumper sticker religion that people grab this verse out and just make it mean what they want it to mean. And we can't do that with Scripture. Scripture has a specific meaning within the context that it's written. For refers to the verse before it. Jesus is going to be lifted up, crucified, given as a sacrifice from God to atone for our sins, to pay the penalty of my sin and His body. Whose sin? It's mine. Whose body? Jesus's. For God so loved the world is referencing back to that idea. Because of my sin, because He is crucified, that is what it means for God to love the world and give His Son. So who killed Jesus? We could say, well, the, the Romans carried it out because they were in charge of the government, but the Jews really... They were the motive behind it. But who is responsible for the death of Jesus? And the answer is really simple. God is responsible for the death of Jesus. Paul says this exact thing in Romans 3. Just track with me. You'll see God is the one who is responsible for the death of Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. 
declared counted righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His own blood. Who is the whom that He's speaking of? Jesus Christ. God puts forth Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word is very important, that propitiation word, because it's I'll see some translations that try to use a different word and it doesn't, it doesn't get across the idea of like the way that you're not going to hell, the way that you're not paying for the penalty of your sins for all eternity is because God put forth Jesus as a propitiation. Paul is writing to people who understand what that word means. We don't. We don't live in that culture. They understood it. what it means is it is a sacrifice offered to appease the wrath of a god. They believed in a multiplicity of gods and there's a drought and so the gods must be angry at it. So we're going to go offer sacrifices to the gods to assuage His anger against us, to appease His wrath so that it will rain again. That was the mentality of that day. And Jesus or Paul is bolting on to this kind of mentality saying, this is the way that you're saved. God puts forth Jesus as a propitiation. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross appeased the wrath of God. R.C. Sproul said, The greatest demonstration of the wrath of God is not in the Old Testament. We always think of God as wrathful in the Old Testament. So the greatest demonstration of God's wrath is in the New Testament. It is God pouring His wrath out upon Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of, that I committed, that the whole world committed. That's what Paul is saying here. God put forth Jesus. That's what happens in John 3.16. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. God is not righteous because He forgives you of sin. God is only righteous if He equates and He makes sin be reconciled. Every sin ever committed in the history of the universe is reconciled either by the wrath of God in eternal punishment or by the blood of Jesus. And that is our salvation. That's the message of the gospel. That is how we are saved. So what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3 is exactly what Paul writes about in Romans 3. John 3, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Romans 3, God puts forth Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation, an appeasing sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath against our sin. The exact same thing. John 3, Romans 3 are saying the same thing. Jesus is talking about why God did it. Paul talks about how God did it, but it's the same message. John 3 is not some happy, clappy, sing-song, Sunday school Bible verse that should be held up at a sign at every football game that you'll ever see. Uh, it's, It's so much more than that. We do a disservice. It is an expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God into our salvation. God loved the world. Now, John, in his epistle, later will write, do not love the world nor the things of the world. Say, well, Jesus said God loved the world and John says don't love the world. They're talking about two different things. When John writes love not the world, he's speaking of the culture's value systems and the ways of a fallen, broken world. Jesus, when he says so God so loved the world, he's speaking about people. He is making an all-encompassing statement that would have been radical to Nicodemus because Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews and we know that God loves Jews, but... All these other people, they're heathens. They're not not part of the 
the people of God. They're not part of faith because they're, they're not Jews. Uh, and so Jesus is expanding this vision to say, no, God loves everybody in the world. He's talking about people. We want to be a place where the doors are open to every race, every religion, every creed, to sinners, to hurting, to the proud, to the broken, to the skeptic, to the atheist, to the person who is on a faith journey, but they're not there, which would describe everybody in this room. Like none of us have arrived. We're all on a journey to be more like Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. There are religions such as Islam that struggle, big time struggle with the idea that the eternal infinite God of this universe had a son. He did because the Bible tells us over and over that God had a son. Now He did not have a son in the way that people have children. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she becomes pregnant uh, and Jesus is born into an earthly body. He has God as His Father. He has Mary as His mother. He is fully God and He is fully man. And I have never been able to fully comprehend that. Uh, I don't know that we're supposed to. Uh, it, it, is, it is a divine identity that Jesus is not like God. He's not partially God. Uh, he is the eternal God manifest in flesh. And if you were not here for the first two sermons on John 1 in beginning in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word uh, was became flesh those sermons are online but Jesus is the word of God incarnate in human flesh and God put him forward for our sins and our response to that is to look unto him to see him for who he is to have that allegiance that trust that faith in him this is not easy believism. This is not mental gymnastics. It is not praying a sinner's prayer and now you're set. Now, there is a mega, mega church in Texas this morning that without a doubt the pastor will get up and ask everyone to recite this prayer, invite Jesus into your hearts, and then the pastor will say, if you have said this prayer, you are now saved. Um, I can't go off on a tangent there. Uh, that is not what faith in Jesus Christ means. It is not praying a sinner's prayer. But on the other side of that, please don't minimize the power of what it means to believe in Jesus. Because there's a lot of people that don't believe that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, that He is the One with a capital O, that divine identity who can save us from our sins. Biblical belief, it's not a mental exercise. It's not praying a sinner's prayer. It's not you deciding that you're going to be saved or that you're going to do anything to save yourself. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. It is a accompanied and driven and produced by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We were dead in sin. Paul says you were dead in trespasses and sin. And the Spirit... I, I memorized it. King James, the Spirit quickens you. It doesn't mean the Spirit makes you fast. It means the Spirit makes you alive. That quickened is language to say it makes you alive. I was preaching one time and I talked about, and I, I knew that quickened meant that. And, uh, and one of those things in sermons you wish you could take back, I talked about how Hebrews 4.12 said to, uh, said that the Word of God is powerful and makes you fast. And, is, and I knew that's not what it meant. And a few seconds later, I caught myself. I said, no, that's, it doesn't make you fast. Quickened means it makes you alive. 
so the Spirit makes you alive. It is Jesus calling out like He calls to Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus can't do anything to make himself come alive. He's dead. And it takes Jesus standing outside the tomb and yelling out, Lazarus, come forth. It is the work of the Word of God that saves us. John 7. John is just filled with what it means to be a believer in Jesus. John 7, if you believe in me as the scripture has said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds his commentary, Jesus said this speaking of the Holy Spirit. If you believe in me, you will have the Holy Spirit flowing out of you like rivers of living water. John 8, except you believe in that I am He, you will also all likewise die in your sin. John 11, if you believe in me, even if you die, you will live again. The Gospel of John is saturated with the language of Jesus declaring, You must believe I am the Messiah. And true saving faith will transform your life. It will lead you to water baptism in the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. It will lead you to live a life where the Holy Spirit of God flows from you as rivers of living water because you are filled with His Spirit. And if you do this, you will not perish. Jesus said, you will never see death. I preached a sermon three or four years ago entitled, You Will Never See Death. If you are in Christ, you will never die. It's not an option. You will, if you are in Christ and abide and remain in Christ, death is nothing to be feared because it doesn't exist. Even if your body dies, you will never see death. If you do this, you will never perish. He's not speaking of a physical death. He means that this is the only way that you can escape the righteous wrath of a holy God. You are no longer condemned in the courtroom of heaven by the righteous judge because the judge has put forth his own son to pay the penalty of your awful crime of being a sinner. Is there anything worse than facing the wrath of a holy God? And is there anything worth celebrating more than accepting the gift of eternal life that is in Jesus Christ? And John continues to quote after John 3.16. Jesus doesn't stop talking. It's not the end of the conversation. Jesus says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He did not come to condemn us. And we know that Paul, we've talked about it here before, that Paul in Romans is using law court language. Justification, counted righteous, declared innocent, condemnation, being declared guilty by a judge. Paul uses all this law court language, but it's also found in John 3. Jesus talking about being condemned. He did not come to condemn us. Why are we condemned? It's because we were born sinners. There is a lack of the talk of sin today, and we must talk about sin because it is what damns us from the day we are born, and that is sin. Sin is the problem, and there is no amount of morality or right living or right doing or right anything that you can do to save yourself or to keep yourself saved. We are saved in Christ alone. And he says in verse 19, And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is judgment. Why will the world be judged? The world will be judged because light came into the world and people loved darkness more than they loved light. And before you go, because this is easy to do, before we go and think about how they, they were exposed to the light and yet they rejected the light because they wanted to continue in darkness because their deeds were evil, and we can think, well, that's, that's other people. I know people like that, or I know that's the world system. But before you go and think about how that applies to this present broken, hurting world full of chaos, which it does, think about how it applies to your own life and my own life. Sometimes we still love darkness more than light. Why? Because when deeds are evil, they aren't exposed in darkness. That's why we need, I love the phrase that Paul says, he talks about the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. The light. We all need the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ to saturate our minds and spirits and souls and thoughts and motives and drives and desires. We need that light to, to go inside. It's, it's got to come from a prayer that says, Search me, O God, and God, let the light into the deep recesses of my soul and inside the junk drawers and inside the closets where we hide our evil ways. And, and Lord, walk up and down the, the corridors of my soul. And, and when you knock on the door and where I'm prone to say, There's nothing to see here, Lord. Just keep moving on because I don't want to open that door. God, help me because of my sanctification, because I want to live pure and clean and holy because I want my deeds to be right. I want my ways to be light, right before God, not as an effort to be saved, but as an effort to respond to His grace and mercy out of a lifestyle full of thankfulness to say, I know that living right doesn't save me, but it's the right thing to do and it's what will happen naturally when I'm full of the Spirit. The works of the flesh, when that old man, I crucify that old man every day and I put him down and tomorrow he's going to rear his ugly head, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crush that. Paul writes about the works of the flesh which are manifest and he's writing to believers because even as spirit-filled believers, we still have a broken nature and there are things inside of us that will, that will go against what we know to do is right. And so we crush that, and we, we don't do that by willpower. Willpower is a very poor, uh, ineffective way to live right. I'm just going gonna to buckle down and live right by my own will. Good luck with that. It takes the power of His Spirit. It takes that power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit working, manifesting fruit in our life. This is why Paul in the same chapter saying the works of the flesh are these. It doesn't take any evil spirits or devils or anything like that to do. Your flesh will do that just fine. You, know, you don't have to teach a child how to lie. They don't have to learn from somebody else. They pick up on it pretty quick on how to lie. And then from there it just, it just steamrolls. And we're all there. I mean, we are all products of that nature. But then Paul says the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and goodness and temperance and faith, against such there is no law. He's saying these are the things that as a, like how do you know the Spirit is active in somebody's life? 
you know, inspect the fruit, you know, and none of us are, God didn't call any of us to be fruit inspectors, to inspect your fruit. I got to inspect my fruit. Like what inside of me, where am I lacking in love and joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and goodness and temperance and faith? And somewhere in those areas, I guarantee you I'm lacking right now. And probably so are you. So we look at that and we say, Jesus talked about this. Jesus said, the light is coming to the world and people love darkness and say, Jesus, I don't want that to be about me. I don't want to love darkness more than light just because I have evil deeds. But I want to stand before you and this is what humbles us. Like, how do you become a, a humble person? Like, I think the, as soon as you start saying, I'm a humble person, like you're bragging and you're proud about being humble and it just kind of falls apart. Uh, like, I'm so proud. No, no, no. I'm humble because I stand before God and say, after all these years, you're still working on me. I'm, I'm exposing myself to the light knowing that I'm going to, I'm going to see a lot of things here that, that need work, but because of sanctification, because we know that we separate the two, justification is God's declaration of our righteousness. That's set. I don't wake up tomorrow wondering that if Jesus comes back tomorrow, the second coming happens tomorrow, that I'm going to be lost because I had a bad day today, because I did some things, I had some thoughts. You know, it's... God doesn't go like a turnstile door in and out of your heart based upon your emotions or, or just what kind of day you had. We're not talking about justification, but we are talking about sanctification, which the Bible, the New Testament, is saturated with language. It's what it's trying to do. Okay, you're now the people of God. Now what? What's next? What is the next step in your life? And that's the question I'm asking us this morning. What is the next step? If you are already there, what is the next step in your life? It could be adding some things, adjusting some things, altering some things, removing some things in your life. It could be your next step. There, there's, there's people that, that come, that attend here, that I'm in conversation with about baptism. I don't have those conversations in the group setting, but we're in conversations about, hey, Think this is the next step for you in your walk with God. Uh, let's, let's look at this and then let's look at this. And that's what I believe God's called me to do is to walk with you in those things. What is the next step for my personal sanctification? What is the next step uh, in, in what I need to do to be part of the people of God? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Please be careful not to dissect this so much like I have done this morning. That's what we do in sermons. We kind of pull it apart. But don't look at it as a, a verse just to be dissected and examined. Look at it as a glorious truth to be enjoyed and embraced and thank God for. Unless Jesus comes in the way He did, it's not good news. Sometimes I think we assume that, well, God sent His Son into the world who is fully God and divine. He's not partially God. He is, he is God. That's why we worship Him. That's why He can forgive sins. I mean, He heals somebody, or He starts off by forgiving somebody's sin, and they said, who but God can forgive sin? And then He raises them. He heals them. And Yes, that's true. Jesus is fully God. But the gospel, the, the word gospel itself means good news. 
So some Bibles you'll read, instead of the word gospel, it will say good news. I still like the word gospel. I think it has a connotation. I mean, good news could be, hey, uh, you know, I got a new job. I bought a new truck. That's good news. This is not good news like that. This is the gospel. This is the greatest news in the history of the universe. But why is it good news? If God hates sin, which He does, and if God's wrath is upon our sin, and it is, the question, how could a loving God send somebody to hell is the wrong question. It's how could a holy God not make the sin paid for in some way? And one little, if there is anything, is a little sin. One little sin is infinitely offensive to God's infinite holiness. My sin has to be dealt with, with the wrath of God, because He's holy. There's no other choice. So the fact that Jesus comes, God in flesh, is not good news. If God is against you because of his, your sin and His wrath is coming, if God then comes into flesh and walks among you, what makes you think that's good news? If the wrath is going to be there, that is not by default good news at all. That might be the most terrifying news is that God sent His Son into the world. The reason it's good news is because He loves us. For God so loved the world that He doesn't will that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. It, it really does pain me and break my heart to know that there will be people who have heard this message who may not have eternal life as their future destiny. And that doesn't have to be the case. Everybody who hears the gospel can respond to the gospel. We are not, we are not five-point Calvinists, uh, which means we don't believe that there are some people who from the day that they are born are destined to be saved or to be lost and there's nothing they can do about it. We, we don't believe in that type of predestination that, well, you're not one of the chosen no matter what you do, uh, you know, then it's, this, is not how we, this is not how we reconcile Scripture. We believe, uh, I believe, I, I never can say we, I don't know what you believe. Uh, I can tell you, I believe after years and years of studying Scripture that, uh, that we do, that every person does have an opportunity to respond uh, to the call of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm preaching this morning, is that I believe God is supernaturally working through the power of His Holy Spirit among anybody who walks through these doors, among the people that we come in contact with, that we can witness to, that we can talk to about the gospel, to give people an opportunity, a chance to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is so much bigger than John 3.16. But if there is a verse that sums up what the good news is, as a starting point, maybe we say this is the jumping off point. We can start here. There's so much more to this. There's being buried with Christ in baptism. There's being uh, in, enjoying His resurrection through the filling of His Spirit. There's all of that. But it does start with a simple fact. And you know what hurting and lost and broken people don't really care about the nuances of certain ideas and positions. 
what they really, when people are hurting and lost and broken, what they really care about is there's somebody that loves me. There's somebody that cares for me. And more than that, when my love ceases to fix the problem, I can say, you know what? God really does love you. And He loves you in a way that, like, my love is corrupt. I may love somebody, but that love is corrupt. It's, it, it's full of questionable motives and, and all of these things, but, but God's love is pure. There is no one who can love like God loves, and that is the hope that we have, and that is the only hope in this absolutely chaotic, broken world. He is the only hope, and that is the hope of Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand with me this morning. I want to go before the Lord in prayer one more time. Lord, I know that it is no accident that 2,000 years after these words were spoken in a private conversation that we have them recorded to read. That didn't happen by accident. We believe that the Bible is given to us miraculously as the book that we're supposed to have with the words that we're supposed to have so that we can read them and take comfort in them and we thank you for that. It is part of what it means to have faith is that we trust and believe that. And now Lord, you said to Nicodemus that God loved the world, that he gave us you. But not just to Nicodemus, but to everybody here this morning, we thank you for that. We truly, each of us, give you thanks for the gift of salvation, for the gift that you gave this world, that we may look unto a risen Savior and live an eternal life and have hope and peace in this life. We thank you for that today. Lord, as we go our separate ways this morning, as we walk back into the fog of a secular world until we come together again, Lord, keep your hand upon us. I pray that you would lead us and guide us and direct us that we know if we're spirit-filled that out of our innermost being flows rivers of the Holy Spirit. Even when we don't feel that, we know it's true. We know by faith that it, this is so much more than feelings and emotions. But we trust you this morning that we are just exuding the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is leading us and guiding us throughout the week to make right decisions and right choices and right ways of living. Lord, help us to be lights and witnesses in this world. Be with us today, and we will continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.